One of the biggest hurdles in starting a podcast can be the overwhelming thought of all of the technology. Let me tell you, don't let it stop you, especially in the beautiful online recovery space. We could really save lives. So if you have a message that you want to share and a story that you want to tell, the Podcast Host Academy can help you get there. Inside the Podcast Host Academy, you'll find courses on everything from equipment, software and editing, to presentation skills and vocal warm-ups. Click the link in today's show notes for an additional 15% off your subscription to the Podcast Host Academy and alitu.com. That is alitu, A-L-I-T-U dot com. I moved to America with nothing. I started off in Miami. I had no friends. I, it wasn't like there was Facebook chat groups, Australians <laughs> in America. Yeah. It was nothing. It was the wild, wild west. So I always tell people, do what's right and the universe will guide you in the right place. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sobriety Diaries. I'm your host, Nate Kelly, a recovering alcoholic, seven years from my last drink, a recovery mentor and podcast producer. I am so grateful to be bringing you these powerful stories of recovery told by you, those who live them. Please share this podcast with anyone who may need it today. And with that, let's open the diary on episode 86 of the Sobriety Diaries. Oh, today's a good one, my friends. Author, podcast host, TV personality, life coach, interventionist. We've got a lot to cover, my friend. Welcome, Mike Diamond. How are you today, my friend? I am awesome. I am. Nate, thank you for having me. I'm always grateful. I'm sitting here with you. It's a good day. I'm always grateful. You said right before the the interview started, you're here to be of service. And that's something we learn in recovery, right? It's about others. It's not about ourselves anymore. I think that's the most important thing. Someone asked me the other day, they're like, why are you so kind and compassionate and giving? I said, well, I wasn't around kind and compassionate and giving people when I grew up in Australia. And I said, I look at life very simply. The first part of my life, I, I, want, I tried to feed myself and feed my insecurities and feed me. And then when I got sober, my purpose was to help others, inspire, educate, and motivate others to live their potential and best life, whether they're sober or not sober in recovery. And then, so it's purpose and how can I help people? It really depends on our motivation behind things and, and what drives us to do things. And if the motivation's not right, I think, you know, to your point, we may be spinning our wheels and, and finding that, you know, certain things aren't serving us. But if the motivation behind it is right, we kind of find our way. And, and uh, my friend Laura calls them spiritual breadcrumbs. Like you find these things along the way that will tell you that you're on the right path. Like keep keep on going. The motivation's right. I love that. Yeah, I always say intention. Yeah. So it's motivation, intention. If I've got a positive intention and my intention is to do the right thing, um, you're right. Because we all want the cake. Of course. The cake's the big goal. Yeah. But the universe gives us little crumbs to show us that we're on the right path. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
But if we're constantly trying to feed ourselves in our ego, which like fight, flight, freeze, or feed, yes, it just it's just chaos. It's just you know that it's right. just it's we <laughs> living. I have to giggle now because it's just so far from what the white life I used to live, which was complete insanity. Yes, like just the, the just. I can I look back at it now and I was less like it was just a waste of wasting time just trying to be authentic. It was just silly. Well, that's a great segue, Mike. You have this incredible platform and and strategies for positivity and success. But I always like to start with a personal journey and, and get to know a little more about Mike and and how we evolved to where we are now. Absolutely. So I was born uh, in Perth, Western Australia. And for people listening, Perth, Western Australia is geographically the most isolated capital city in the world. So it's really, it's on the West Coast of Australia and it's, you know, it's a, it's a small place. And, um, you know, I grew up with not a lot of good information. Um, my parents worked hard. They tried. European background. You know, we grew up Greek, but then I do a 23 and me and I find out I'm Greek, Italian and Middle Eastern, which is always pretty strange. You know, you're like, what was my ancestors doing back then? <laughs> right. Right? How did they and, make it um, all the way over? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was very dysfunctional. You know, my um, my sister was came in 13 weeks premature. Uh, she was lucky to live. And my older brother at seven got um, measles encephalitis. Mm. and uh so he was in a coma for like i think it was like 12 to 13 days you know they didn't have a lot of resources you know middle class but my dad would unload on me you know just frustration you know and i have a little brother as well so he didn't drink no one in my family drank but my dad owned the bigger stores but it was it was just mental and physical abuse constantly and the crazy thing is my grandmother um and her friend got me drunk at four and I nearly killed me actually. And for years, my parents never took responsibility of that incident. I'm not angry at them now. And uh, they would say that, I oh, remember when you stole liquor from your, your grandmother and that I'm like, no, I don't actually, I was four years old and they got me drunk intentionally. And like that kind of dysfunction that like stays in the family system, um, at 12, I just started mood altering. I was a track star. I was a great little athlete. Um, I, you know, I broke records and won championships. And But the, but what really made me, you know, it, it's environment and genetic to me. It was definitely in my genes. Both my grandfathers had the gene. But the environment didn't allow me to thrive. It was constant chaos, stress, and, you know, I, I went, I'd win a, a championship running and my dad never saw me run. And instead of my mom celebrating my wins, she would be like, you're such a show off. Mm -hmm. So I would felt a massive amount of shame for being successful. But then again, if I lost, I would be shamed. So I didn't, you know, you don't know who you are. And I had all these talents in so many areas. So, you know, 12, 13, my dad owned a liquor store. The liquor was there. The surplus again. I'll be honest. I was like Frank the Tank. Once it hit my lips, it, <laughs> right. it tasted so good. Right? <laughs> Give me more of this, yeah. and and then the cycle began. Um, so I struggled through high school because I was undiagnosed dyslexic and ADHD, 
And, you know, I grew up in that era where you're stuck in stupid if you can't figure things out. It wasn't like now, like my son's on the spectrum and they pick everything up now. He's five. When I was a kid, like he's great at sports. He doesn't want to pay attention. He's stupid. That was it. And then constant screaming and abuse. And, you know, I got thrown out of school at 16. I was struggling. I was dealing pot, doing dumb things. And I was struggling. I was really bad. I mean, I, I was, I, I really, it was crazy. Um, I really wanted to kill myself. I just was in a bad, bad shape. And I, I basically got a handful of, uh, that were like, they're called Panadol. They're like headache pills, like aspirins. Yeah. And I jumped over my neighbor's fence and she was, she was just, I don't know why I jumped on my fence. I guess my unconscious, my higher power said that was the best choice and I had the pills in my pocket and I, I was my my goal was to just swallow them and see what happened and she just she has a she had a glass door and she saw me and she just came out and started chatting to me and she goes you okay and I'm like no I'm not at all I'm fucked up like I I, I can't figure shit out and she just kind of it was it was the most bizarre like i do interventions now like she just had this way of just looking at me and she hugged me and I had, no one had told me they'd love me no one told me it was going to be okay and she just hugged me in a way that i knew she cared and she just looked at me and she goes in 30 years from now this won't matter you're before your time you're going to be okay and i and i looked at her and i was like I actually believe her and she gave me this, like I call, I try to drop a little dose of positivity on everyone. Yeah. Just give them that little fucking dose. And it literally changed the course of my life. So I struggled through that, graduated high school, went to Sydney from Perth and auditioned for a massive acting school and, and, and got in and and then, and I, and I was, I was sober. So I, I was young. I was sober, 18, 19. I would go through these, um, you know, areas of sobriety. I didn't understand what sobriety was. And I remember in Sydney going to this meeting um, and a guy got up. It was a really hardcore meeting. And a guy was, back then you could smoke in meetings and a guy got up to speak and, and a guy threw an ashtray at him. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And I was like, I'm not like these people. You know what I mean? So I didn't yeah. have mentors and I, and I had really bad mentors growing up. I never had, there was a lot of um, just kind of sexual abuse. Like I had acting teachers that would just cross over Mark, like marks with you and do things inappropriate. And no, I had no safe ground to be authentic and be okay. And there was this moment that, Another moment that changed my life, I was using heavy and I had an acting mentor who wasn't a good person. And he took me and another student and we were out and he took us back to his apartment and he got us high and he took advantage of it. He straight out pretty much raped her and I couldn't figure it out. I was so messed up. And the next day at acting school, I, I pulled her aside. I said, what do you want me to do? She goes, don't say anything because we shouldn't have been there and I don't want to be you know, ashamed. And I was like, I don't confide in another friend and she's like you got to say something like you got it and i'm like okay so i went to the dean of the school and i said um this is what happened what do you want me to do and he's like it's your word against his you know he's not a good person i said you know what i'll just leave fuck it 
I'll just leave acting school and um, that way you can kick him out. He's like, okay. So I left and wow. I was walking down this. I knew it was the right thing to do. Yeah. The craziest thing is, and this is what changed my life, I was walking down this this place called Pitt Street Mall. It's an open-air mall. And I went in, there was a guy that I used to see when I was going to acting store. And, you know, I asked him for a job selling clothes and he's like, aren't you going to acting store? I said, look, long story, I'm moving to America, need a job selling clothes. And it was really funny because he's like, wait a second, you want to come into my store, take a job to leave? I said, yeah, it's the truth. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, and my life has always been this random, random thing where I always say preparation meets opportunity is luck. But if oh, you're not prepared, so right? But if it you're not prepared, so you never yeah. get the opportunity. Yep. And I, I have this incredible ability under pressure. I think it's because of my upbringing. I can, I can turn it on real quick. Like if I need to be present, I can just do it. And he said, if you can sell clothes to the next person that works in, I'll give you a job. I said, done. So I said to them, you know, I studied acting from a young kid. I said, everyone move back. <laughs> I got There's a menswear store. Yes, yeah, a menswear <laughs> store. And a, and a girl walked in, a lady walked in. And uh, I just kind of filled her out. I said, are you looking for something for your husband or your son? And she randomly said, um, my husband. Oh, no, my son. And I said, okay, is he around my size? She goes, he is. And I was like, all right. So I didn't know the stock in the store, but I, I peeked in the window. And I was like, you know, I've got an idea here. So I said to her, hey, hold on. So I grabbed, I looked in the window and I looked around the store because I didn't know the stock was size. I said, I'll be a second. And I went into the change room and I put on the outfit and I said, how does this look? And she's like, I'll take it. <laughs> so I got a job, right? So yes. I'm hustling, selling clothes, still going to acting classes, planning to come to America. And I did my song and dance to this other lady. She loved it. She's like, what are you doing here? I said, I'm moving to America. And they were laughing at me, the other store guys. She's like, oh, you should enter the green card lottery. I was like, what the hell's that? She goes, it's a lottery. You can win a green card. I was like, yeah, okay. She's up, she's out of her mind, right? <laughs> so the next morning I was dressing the window with my friend who worked with me and, and I looked down the mall and she had the bags of the shop and I was like, oh, she's going to return the clothes. So I hid in the back <laughs> yeah. and, and she came in and she knocked on the window and my friend goes, oh, what's up? Is everything okay? And she goes, yeah, the clothes are great. I wanted to say thank you. And I bought Mike the green card lottery ticket. And I popped my head out. And I was like, hey, I was hiding in the back. I thought you could have returned the clothes. Like being the fucking jackass I am. <laughs> right. She goes, no. She's like, I, I, I want you to enter this. And so I sat there the night before, the night that night. And I went to the embassy. I said, look, is this, a, is this a fast? I said, no, it's a legit. So I thought, fuck it. I sent it in. And I left my parents' address in Perth because I was like, I was coming. You know what? I'm coming. I'm burning my boats. I'm coming to America no matter what. Six months later, I was about I was about three weeks away from planning to come to America. And I fucking got the the American immigration messaged me that I'd won a green card. They sent me a letter. Wow. And the greatest thing about this story is this, that I tell people about the importance of following your inventing self and your intuition, your higher power and do, doing the right thing isn't easy, but doing the easy thing isn't right. Mm. If I thought I had a plan and my plan was to go to acting school, get an agent and come to America, right? But 
that person was a toxic person and I shouldn't have let him into my life and he took advantage of that per, uh, that girl, if I didn't leave acting school, I never would have got my green card. Mm. So I always tell people, don't try to fix, do what's right and the universe will guide you in the right place. And I moved to America with nothing. I started off in Miami. I had no friends. I, it wasn't like there was Facebook chat groups, Australians <laughs> in America. Yeah. It was nothing. It was the wild, wild west. And I got a job in a jewelry store and just a little job. I was going to acting auditions and doing music projects. And a random guy from come, came in to buy jewelry, just a random dude. And he's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, selling jewelry, I guess. And he's like, <laughs> look like I'm doing. Yeah. Like you want to, I'm not making hot dogs. Do you want to uh, work in a nightclub? I'm like, That's a, no, no, I hate nightclubs. No, no, no. And I was sober. And he goes, it's 250 bucks a night. I said, to do what? And he's like, you just have to open up a rope and check a guess. I'm like, $250 a night. I was making like 10 bucks an hour. I'm like, I'm your guy. I would do whatever it takes. I had a Absolutely. little apartment on Miami Beach for 400 bucks a month. I was like, 250 bucks. This is like back in 1998. Like it was, and another, I got, I was good with people and I met the manager and he's like, these famous club owners from New York are coming down. And, wow. and they make me their guy. And I said, why would you do that? They're like, we just, there's something about you that's just let people get to know you. You're a cool Australian dude. You're funny. You're so not trying to be the club guy. Yeah. You're just being a guy. And that's what started my career. Basically, they gave me this break. I ended up shooting a sitcom in Miami because of it. I got a record deal. I moved to New York. They opened up in New York. They made me partners in their places. Um, I pivoted by like, I, that's how I got on the um, ink shows. Yeah. That's how I got the TV show with Scott Weiland. We owned a bar together. And um, 2006 was the moment that I really stopped forever. I um, I was shooting a VH1 show with Scott Weiland from Velvet Revolver. Yeah. About me owning a bar called... Was the bar was called Snitch and it was the, the show was called Dive and I helped create Miami Inc with Army and those guys and Scott was we were we were going hard eight ball of coke a day drinking a lot and Scott's uh, ex wife now Mary had two kids and she was packing shit up she was like I'm done and um, I, I I guess I expected him to have a different answer he. I said, what do we do? You were in the four seasons, fucked up on cocaine. And he's like, I'm Scott Weiland. I'm like, huh? And I had that, it, it, it literally, it was a moment of clarity and epiphany. And I looked at, it's like my whole life, I, I zoomed out and I saw myself from a little kid to being around this guy and shooting this show. And I was like, you know what? It's a lie. I climbed the wrong fucking mountain. It's all bullshit. I'm a fraud. Mm. And literally the next day, I rang a friend of mine who was 15 years sober. And I said, I used to get sober on and off. I said, but I'm done. I'm done. He goes, what do you want to do? I said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not, I'm not using again. I'm done. I've seen where I'm done. And he said, okay. And it was, that was it. Meetings two, three times a day committed to helping others and i literally never craved or looked at it again anyway i just was like it was that was that was that clear in my mind 
that I was that on authentic making disempowering choices. Wow. And I've never thought about it again. It just it, it it was removed from me in an instant. Happy Sober Day, friends. For additional episodes of the Sobriety Diaries or to apply to be a guest on the show, check us out on the web at thesobrietydiaries.com or for our video interviews, head over to youtube.com slash natekelly. And don't forget to rate and review our show on whatever platform you're listening on. It truly helps others to find the show. And in turn, we really could help save lives with just a few clicks. Thanks so much for downloading today's episode. And now back to our story. The reality shows since then have just exploded. And we see like the Real Housewives and it seems like there is this alcohol drives a lot of the scenes that they shoot and the drama that's on the show and uh, everyone's throwing a party and they're getting fucked up and fighting on camera but i think this was bef- a, a little bit before that or you know since the every show 2004 really. yeah. right 2004 we did the show we had really the first so we were the we, they took a risk on the show yeah and they wanted to make it it was the first bar show docky series before Vanderpump. We were way before 2004. Way before, right. Yeah. And it was literally stepping in. The only debaucherous show at the time was Breaking Botaducci. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That was before Which was me. VH1 so Danny, too, right? Correct. Exactly. Yeah. So, what they wanted was they wanted the Australian version of Botaducci. Mm. Basically, they wanted to see me die on camera. Huh. That would have been great TV. I mean, seriously, they didn't, there was no, I mean, and you had Tom Sizemore, unfortunately, who died just recently, yeah. his show. So they wanted the train wreck. And so he's they, the They were irony. driving this, this Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. They, oh, no, no, they wanted, yeah. they wanted the wheels to fall off. They didn't yeah. want me. But here's the crazy thing. So now I'm on um, the show Intervention on A&E, yeah. right? And here's the crazy thing. In 2003, they started shooting intervention i think ken Sealy, the legend was yeah. the first right yeah. i was shooting my vh1 show as a complete fuck up while they started intervention right now 17 years of sobriety <laughs> later i'm on wow. intervention helping people like how crazy you couldn't script that i am in <laughs> awe because i'm such a fan of that show and that show so played great. a part in my sobriety and when we set up this interview and I realized that you are an interventionist on that show, I, I mean, my jaw hit the floor. So what has that experience been like to solidify your own sobriety? I think sometimes people don't realize, you know, those of us who help tell stories of other people and, you know, have a, a small part in other people's sobriety, you know, we're still working on ourselves each day as well. So how has that experience been for your own recovery? It's so special that you said that. And you know what's really interesting, what I learned? So my life's been very strange. Like I get these opportunities and the universe tests me to see if I'll do the right thing. So I, I was actually doing stand-up comedy and I got a big agent at Gersh and I turned to my sponsor and I said, I can't do this. He said, what do you mean? I said, I can't actually do this. He's like, what do you want to do? I said, I got to go and help people. He said, okay. 
So there was an agency, two agencies in LA at the time. This is back in, God, well, I was helping people do interventions before then, like 2010 myself, but I got hired by these two agencies as their guy, like go out and find people and do interventions, right? And, and, And I'll be honest, like part of me, which I think is, I don't want to go into dangerous territory. I don't like when people say sometimes in AA, but, oh, the person doesn't want it enough. Or the person's, you know, they just didn't want it. Because what I learned as an interventionist is this, when I got certified and trained and doing them, is that when you've used to a certain point that it's become an unconscious competence and it's disempowering, the, the brain gets damaged. And the prefrontal cortex, where we make our executive decisions, there's a part of the brain called the orbital frontal cortex. That gets damaged. That controls our impulses. So me as Mike, right, or you as Nate, if we've been under stress, under trauma, beaten down, and we go to remove that pain by, you know, drinking fentanyl, whatever it is, we know it's guaranteed. Over time, we've lost our ability to control that that habit unless we have hope and someone gives us hope and someone can intervene and show us a better way. Mm. So when I do interventions in LA, a lot of the time, I'll be honest, I'm dealing with people that are wealthy and kids and celebrities, right? right? But when I get called to like, these shows and that I'm different. This is like people that never get a guy like me, never get a top interventionist, never get an opportunity. So spiritually, it is such an incredible healing process where I can walk into someone's life and give them hope and help them and redirect the way they're thinking and change their perspective and get them into a safe place when they have a chance and an environment to thrive it's really fucking special. Wow. And I can be honest, I didn't look at it like that until I realized the responsibility I have. I have a responsibility to help people. It's up to them after that, but I've got to still help them. I've still got to lean over. If someone's making a bad choice, go, hey, you're making this choice, but these other choices you may not have thought of. Do you want to have a look? You know what I'm saying? So it's a very special healing and it's also a healing healing moment for the families because i can sit families down i can explain the disease i can explain dysfunctional family systems i can explain that the attic is not actually choosing this in, in a way that they they don't know any better right and we, we can write beautiful letters that a lot of people don't want to talk about but they can put it down what they really feel and how they love the person. Yes. You know what I mean? And yes. that can shift someone that it's, it's such a healing for me, loving experience to be so able powerful. to, you know what I mean? Bring yeah. people together. That, that I bring families together that haven't spoken in years Yes, and they heal. And then the beautiful thing is, and I explain to them is addiction is a family disease. Everyone now can go and help themselves and help the other, but help themselves. You know, it's a really, so it's, it's been really spiritual to me and, and way, my way, I didn't expect it to be effect, affect me like this at all. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. How can it not affect you when you see real relationships and, and real family trauma and, and helping to heal that? I mean, it's just such a powerful thing. 
From an interventionist standpoint, there's also the television aspect of it. So how much of it is you and bringing your own tools and resources? And how much is it the producers trying to uh, have a hand in all it us. or helping you script it's all, things? No, or, it's all us. Is it? Okay, good. It's all us. Yeah, it's the show is not fake at all. It's yeah. they, they don't they don't mess around. Like you don't like this. It's a show. It's not like it's not a reality show in that yeah. sense. It's nothing that it's put this way. And I always say this to people, and I learned this very on in my career um, as an interventionist. You, you got one shot. Like you, you can't. You got to be good. You got to get it done. People need help. You can't. There's no. And and, and I guess this is what's um. I don't give someone an out in my soul. Mm. Look, I'm like, I'm going to figure out how to help you. I'm going to figure it out. I don't know how I leave it up to my higher power. And I, 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 I'm never nervous when I do an intervention. If I do an intervention, I just sit with the person. I give them love. That's all I think about. How can I love this person enough that they can love themselves and make a better choice? That's it. Mike, let's talk about Dose of Positivity. It's out now tools, techniques, and strategies to live your life on your terms. I didn't expect to write it. That's the truth. I, I'd written my first book and it was touring on my first book. Yeah. And I had booked about, I did was doing this thing called Impacted Youth, which was speaking through all the schools, um, booked up as an interventionist. I was booked up coaching people in New York. I mean, I was done. I was like, oh, I got to have a good year. I said to my wife, uh book a trip to spain she's like okay and it was i think end of we just got back from new york it was february and then i did this big podcast with david melser who's a big entrepreneur and a week later that they shut everything down it was mid-march for the, the pandemic and uh, like this time this time three years ago right and i was like oh shit like everything changes <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah, all my speaking gigs went away and, you know, obviously yeah, people were paranoid. <laughs> yeah, and people are paranoid about being around people. So even doing interventions was tricky. I had to do some interventions, start them on Zoom wow, and get people on Zoom and then figure out. So I had to change my whole technique. Yeah. And I just put pen to paper. I always put pen to paper when I, every morning. And I just started to journal some stuff. And then I was like, some, some stuff started to come through me. So I got about 10,000 words down in the first, you know, God, it was quick within like four or five days. And I I called a friend of mine who's a journalist, my first cousin, and I said, look, I don't know if I'm writing a book, but <laughs> some pretty cool stuff came out of me. Would you edit it? She said, yeah, yeah. So she read it and she's like, you're onto something. Why don't you just write and send me and I'll edit. So I wrote the first draft real quick. Like I wrote close to 70,000 words in less than six weeks. Wow. To go into the book, it's like the first half is my life, but not 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 growing up in Perth, but there is some references. But it's it's going through September 11th because the pandemic to me was like September 11th. I watched yeah. the trade centers come down. It was scary. Mm. And I fucked up. I relapsed around then. Um, and then how I've evolved. And I keep things, even though I got sober, in 12-step programs i did and i still use them any it's not about the program it's about you connecting with your higher power and making empowering choices do you know what i mean because a lot of people look look and, and the reason it's called dose is very simple 
dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. There's empowering ways to get a dose and there's disempowering, right? So we, we all crave those four brain chemicals and yeah. every human being is motivated in two ways. Avoid pain and gain pleasure. So I always tell people, how are you going to get your dose? So basically, I teach people in a very simple manner, empowering ways to get your dose, right, to make empowering choices. That's it. Through all my life experience as a drug addict, through my work as an interventionist, through my mindfulness training, my NLP, you've just got to slow down when you're triggered, identify these triggers, and then slowly work through and de-weed the negative to flourish. And the book just gives you simple tools wherever you are in life to reset every day because this is the beautiful thing that people don't understand, Nate. Whether you win or lose, we have 24 hours, right? So if you're suffering, suffer for 24 and, and reset. If you win, only win for 24, right? Just, just get done. Write it off. It's a tax write-off for 24. <laughs> yeah. But, right? Because you and I yes. know you take nothing with you when you die. There's no U-Haul van or, or, or truck like with our moving shit. And it doesn't matter if you're Bill Gates, Elon Musk, or the two of us. When we face our creator, we're naked. You can't negotiate with your creator. So the key is to figure it out while you're having the human experience. Mm. And we all know it doesn't matter what we look at at life. The only reality, Nate, is, is me sitting on a podcast with you right now. That's it. That's so true. Nothing else fucking matters. And like I tell people, everyone has suffered trauma. Everyone has their own experience mm. with trauma. But when the tra- and the trauma doesn't go, we just get better at living with it, right? So when you speak to your parents and they may have abused you, or you you someone reminds you of someone that if someone's being sexually abused, right? It'll trigger the trauma. It'll trigger the memory, right? But it's how you, you've got to have tools to deal when, when you go into your sympathetic nervous system and those memories keep charging through you, right? Whether it's empowering breath work or journaling or speaking to someone else that, that can let you be heard and seen. So there's a technique I teach people. It's called storm. So you stop, you take a breath by breathing diaphragmatically. You get out of your sympathetic nervous system, fight, flight, freeze, and feed, where the memories are stored in the amygdala. You regain clarity by breathing correctly, right, in your parasympathetic nervous system. O is observe. What is the trauma? What is the trigger? Identify it, what it is, write it down. R, reality check and reframe the experience. Hmm. Are you safe right now? Yes, I'm sitting on a podcast with Nate for example, right? I have been triggered by maybe something he said or he played some music, right? Whatever it is, okay? So now you're reframing and getting the reality check in the moment. You know that you're not being abused this second, right? And make the change and move forward, right? So you stop, you take the breath to, to reframe, you observe, you have the reality check, you reframe the experience in real time, and then you make the change to move on. And it's just practice. If you get used to doing that, guess what? You get comfortable with the trauma. It's not, I'm not being attacked right now. Yeah. That reframe. Right. R, I think uh, that, that can make huge, a, a difference. Right? Yeah. Reframe. Yeah. 
reframing yes right reality reframing reality check right now real time like i am sitting in it's like when someone cuts you off on the freeway right yeah you get that shot through your body right yeah and what happens to most people is they don't know how to get out of fight flight and freeze and they don't come down they chase the person 10 exits then all day they their whole day is controlled by that person that cut them off on the freeway So I tell people, do you think, think about this. Do you think that person that cut you off (laughs) got up in the morning, tried to figure out on a GPS where you'd be at 9.30 or 6.30 or whatever and said, I'm going to fuck Mike Diamond's day up. Yeah. I'm going to figure out, right? No one has (laughs) that much time. give a shit about you. Right. (laughs) And that's another thing that I've learned to do, which is the, which changed my life is that, People that have harmed me in the past, it was generational trauma, right? Generational abuse and generational dysfunction that they never had the tools I had to work on themselves, to know how to manage their state, right? So when they were triggered, they just acted out in fear and anger because they never had the ability to to know themselves and there wasn't a lot out there back then there was just like there wasn't books like we can read now right you know when you look back in the the 60s and 70s it was craziness the way they were parenting but i went to school where you could hit a kid teacher could beat the shit out of you and the parent would say well what did you do wrong right yeah you could scream at kids so it's like when i look now I'm not triggered by that anymore. I'm not traumatized by that anymore because I'm like, well, they didn't know any better. I do. So what I'm going to now, if I let that affect me, then that affects everyone I attack or go near because why a sick person acts in a sick way. Mm. A healthy person who is healed can be healthy and heal others. Right? So I don't download all that was downloaded onto me, onto my son. I don't scream at him. I don't, the other day I was messing with my son and I gave him a little shot in the leg. Yeah. Just mucking around. He's like, that's too rough, dad. You don't do that. I'm like, what? I got the shit beaten out of me, right? He doesn't <laughs> right. know that. I don't yell around him. I don't beat him. I don't scream at him. And I broke his, I, I became a transitional character. I broke away, became the black sheep, and then rewired my subconscious mind because it was the, 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 the software that was downloaded on me was fucked up. It was faulty. Mike, I usually like to end with some takeaways or some tangible things for the listeners, but I want to switch it up today from, from an interventionist standpoint. And if we have family members listening who are struggling with, loved ones who are in the throes what are a few steps they can take to start to you know realize to start in the direction of helping their loved one well first of all we all know deep down and this is what a lot of people um, love and enabling are two different things loving unconditionally to someone and saying, well, I'm, I don't want to see them homeless, so I'm allowing them to use drugs or act a certain way in my house, that's enabling. That's not loving them. Because if someone's doing something harmful to themselves, loving them is setting a boundary and, and helping them make a better choice. So the first thing is we have to identify 
what is the person doing? What is they? What are they doing? And be honest. Is it destructive? We all know if you're drinking and driving and smashing your car up, and you're there is no need to. There was no. There's never a need to snort cocaine. There's never a need to smoke meth. There's never a need to take fentanyl. There's never a need to take oxy. Now, oxy and fentanyl prescribed if you are going through massive amount of pain or cancer. We both know. Go to a physician and get it done. But if you're right, yeah. But if you're taking massive amounts of prescription drugs and doing stuff, it's the responsibility of the loved ones to say, okay, we have to set a boundary and draw a line. That's when you've got to call. There's resources, people like me, interventionists, you need to call for help, whether it's an addiction specialist or a counselor, you need to get out of your own ego and say, I need help. First thing to do, ask for help. Then the second thing is when you get the help, take their advice Mm. because it's gone too far. Once it's crossed over and you've lost control of someone or they're losing control and there's there's enmeshment and no boundaries, you need to step back and let a professional come in. And I'm going to tell you what is right, not what you want to hear in a loving, compassionate way, but there's reality. I set boundaries and I teach you tools and techniques and I set up bottom lines and I show you how to set boundaries. And if it's done in a loving way, the person sick and suffering will be overwhelmed with the love Hmm. and make a better choice. End of story. You don't have to be afraid of it. People are afraid, oh, my God, no. Get out of that. The fear has put you in the situation. Love will get you out of it. Mike Diamond, I am humbled and and honored that uh, I got to steal away an hour of your time today. I so appreciate it. I will link the book and and the website, themikediamond.com, in today's show notes. Check Mike out on season 25 of Intervention on A&E. Mike, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's so great to speak to a really nice sober dude on a Sunday. <laughs> it helps both of us. It's, it's loving great. both ways. I love it. It's awesome. Take care of yourself, my friend. We'll talk soon. Bye, buddy. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening today, friend. Hopefully you heard something that resonates with you. And if we help just one person, our job is done. Make sure you check today's show notes for all the information discussed in today's episode and how to connect with our guests. Until next Wednesday, try your best not to drink and be good to yourself. Bye, everyone.